We need to talk about flies. We got to talk about flies. I got to tell you, you know, yeah. <laughs> We can, we can go down a rabbit hole with flying. We go, uh, I don't know if that's mixing metaphors or not, but uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to RPG Rambling with Jeff Jones. This is a weekly show exploring the various details of the tabletop RPG hobby through discussions with interesting people. This week, Trevor Stamper joins me. You may know him as one of the masterminds behind the zine series, The Tales of the Smoking Worm. Today, we discussed our thoughts regarding which size format suits us best when making a zine, and we contemplate how much content we should be packing into our zines. At the end, we delve into a brief discussion of Dungeon Crawl Classics. I have a Patreon, and for the low, low price of $1 a month, you too can support me and get access to outtakes from these episodes. In geek terms, that is the same price that you paid for a comic back in 1988, assuming you are that old. Sisters and brothers, we have a lot of ground to cover. It is time to get rambling. Hello, Trevor. Hey, Jeff. It has been a while. It has. I think it's been two months or so. Yeah, it's. Uh, you've definitely been on a list of a long list of people I I, I, I like to, uh, if I can, chat regularly with, uh, at least make it more often. So a uh, couple other things to talk about, but one I think is, um, you just mentioned was, of course, nobody else is here uh, listening to that, but we're kind of discussing formatting of of work. So I I did a thing. Well, I did a thing. We did a thing. Not we, but uh, a group of us did a thing called uh, Journey of the Madlands, which I put out in an eight and a half by eleven format. And I think it came out roughly. I can't remember what I said. It was like fifteen five. I can't remember what it was. The K words. So there's about fifteen thousand words. Fifteen to sixteen thousand words for a 60 in 60 pages and and you mentioned that you do tales of the smoking worm and your word count is about the same um but your uh but your format's still the standard zine size uh the five and a half by eight and a half oh mine's actually smaller mine's five by eight oh my goodness (laughs) you're a madman i know it's a little bit smaller than that as a matter of fact so if we if you want to talk page count I, I've been thinking about this because it was um, it was something that one of my co-editors, uh, uh, Brian uh, Gilkison, asked me was, how are we going to, how in the world are we going to budget things? You know, you have to have a budget. It was very insistent that I had to have a budget at the very beginning. And I was like, screw a budget. I was like, we'll just build what we want to build and we'll figure out how much that's going to cost. And then I'll have a reference and we can go from there. Yes. Yeah, that was issue one. Issue one had 19 and a half thousand. For 56 pages of content, 60, which you consider the covers, which also had material on. Um, issues two and issues three had 14 and a half thousand words. Issue four has about 14 and a half thousand words, and they range at about 60 to 64 pages plus a cover. And uh, so they're a little bit bigger with almost 5,000 less words, or you know, with, with almost a thousand less words. Yeah, 5,000 less words. And um, What's amazing about that is I go back and look at issue one and it still feels short to me when I look at it. Um, but yeah, it has to do with me letting go and um, not cramming as much as I can into a page, uh, enforcing it, but letting my daughter, Caitlin, who is a professional book designer, she works for HarperCollins uh, full time and then works for me as a side gig. Um, so letting her do layout and not saying, 
we have to fit this on a page, make it work, and everything. So when we get a manuscript done, uh, an issue's worth of manuscript, I give her all the Word files. They've all been edited. Everything's finalized. This is the text, right? And then she will sit down and lay that out the way she thinks it should be laid out. And, um, and what we've done is we've moved more towards bigger two-page spreads for opening yeah. with a little bit of text and then, and then more text um, at the, that is a little more consistent. Anyway, so, um, so I let Caitlin think about space because, that, because I'm busy writing new material already at that point and, um, and everything. So what I'm finding is, yeah, I mean, I think it works. Uh, Smoking Worm is, a, you know, it, it's, it's really jam-packed. I was actually looking at a couple of, I mean, I've got, I, like you, I, I, have, I have an entire bookshelf of Zine. Yeah. Um, from the 70s all the way up to, to today now. And so over a 45-year period. And I was looking at some of the new zines that are selling for $20, which is our price point. I think actually issue four is going to come in at $2 because paper costs um, have gone up tremendously in the past two years. And, um, and so looking at that, I mean, some of these zines get out at 20 pages with maybe a thousand words and they have lots, they're more like art splash. Right. And, uh, and those are beautiful. Don't get me wrong. And, and I pay for them <clears throat> and other people do too. So clearly that's a, that's a, that is a winning model. Um, and so, but, but smoking worm is, is consistently about 14 with that thousand words. But why'd that. you choose five by eight? Why'd you cut off a half inch? That is a good question. I don't have a good answer for you, except when we were when we were initially considering size and shape and form, Caitlin and I had a long conversation about that. And I had a, I already had a bookshelf worth of material about that size, that's all gaming material. And so we stood there and looked at it. And that was the closest size to the old Arduin books and the old uh, and the original TSR book. So is this some sort of, I wouldn't be, but why would theirs have been that size? There's, they're not pretty, I mean, if it's Britain, I could say, okay, there's some weird paper size. I say weird, but yeah, I'll say it's weird. Their paper sizes are weird. Ours is the, ours is the golden standard that everything should be measured. But, uh, but I don't, I don't understand. I guess they, why are they trim? They're either trimming paper, which I doubt. No, I think they are. So they're trimming, they're doing an eight and a half by 11, they're trimming a half an inch off quarter inch off each side yeah yeah and so they're giving your they're giving themselves a quarter inch extra gutter and they're giving themselves a quarter inch extra outer edge lead and uh, and then they're they're able to trim that to match because if you look at this especially um like i have all the errol otis books from the 70s uh, booty and the beast Necro, necromycan um i have a complete run of arduin and a whole host of other people who produce stuff in the early 80s and late 70s and um because I've been collecting it now for about 10, 20 years. Actually, I've had Arduin since the beginning, so that'd be from the early 80s. Um, and so if you look at it, their books are clearly trimmed in post-production. So um, you know, they're they're not they're not ragged at the edges, they're all lined up really nicely. Um they actually that's a, have, that's a lot of paper to chopping off though. Well, and if you think about it, some of those Arduin books, the um first three Arduin books, they're like they clock in and booty and the beast. Arduin books clock in at 64 to 96 pages saddle stitch, right? 
And Booty and the Beast is 128. Well, that makes sense there why you'd be trimming the daylights out of it because you're going to have that much squirting out, squeeze out. I don't know what you call it. (laughs) Slug um, is the extra gutter space that you need, if I remember correctly. Um, Yeah, I mean, so, but if you look at those books, by today's standard, like Errol Otis's Necromycan, or, well, that's a little smaller than Booty and the Beast, which is 126 or 128. I mean, you would have had, that's, a, that's, that's two years with the zines, right? <laughs> that's a quarterly publication for, for a year and a half um, by most zine standards. And so, um, so, yeah. But we've definitely gotten a lot smaller. Uh, I like that sign. It's really, um, I don't know what it is about it. But I like I like that it's a little it feels a little taller and it feels a little narrower. Yeah. And that feels very proportionally nice. It has an aesthetic that is different. Um, it looks weird when you line it up with a whole bunch of other books in terms of like, you know, I, if you remember, I had them, I had a couple issues lined up there at the um, independent publishers booth at a game hole. And so then it starts looking pretty small. But then I think if you look at the thickness, you know you realize that 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 thing is 60 pages there's a lot on there i think the planner compass it was is a little different size and i can't remember what theirs is I, if i remember correctly their a was a5 folded in half or something um so was that come to be so a5 is like six and a widgy something six and 6.23 inches by 9.17 or something like that for european a5 yeah, i thought there's a small Theirs was fairly square. It was more felt more square. Maybe not. Maybe I'm just losing it. <laughs> um, like... Anyway, so I mean, all of these. What, what I find is amazing is that everybody has a different, you know, size, and um, and so six by nine is pretty standard. Eight and a half, you know, five and a half by eight and a half is really standard. I, I think I'm going to go to six. I think six by nine is where I'm going. You know, um, when I look at six by nine, you look at old school essentials, which are not really zines anymore. They're books. Right. Um, <clears throat> they have a nice feel at six by nine. Um, there's also a really, there's a couple of publishers that'll, that'll, that'll print those saddle stitch or uh, Smithbound, um, and they come out looking really good. Um, yeah. And so I think, I, I think I'm going to do a couple of books at six by nine. But we will not be changing the size of Smoking Worm. One no, of the people that, hate you for that. I never, I never yeah. thought about it because Journey to the Madlands, I was going to be like, yeah, I'll just do this one big, and the rest will just be normal. Oh my god, and that's, a, people, that's heresy. Yeah, people are like, no, I like the size. Like, okay, I guess yeah. so. <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, I can't tell you how many problems I have with like my old white dwarfs, which are which are which are um, true. Um, they're a European size, and then they moved to an American size um, about issue. 20 or something like that so the first the first you know 15 or 20 white dwarfs are really tall and thin and then they squatted down and they're a nightmare to try and keep organized in any format like i mean you know you can't i can't put them in binders together or you know on the shelf i have to have wasted space because this these these like you know right and need an extra interest. Well, it's also people I think are, you know, people that kind of quote unquote collect, they want it to be consistent. They don't want this unless everyone is a weird size for for its own cuteness. I mean, there's nobody really wants to want it's a set of things. I didn't think about that. They yeah. want to be consistent. Absolutely. So <clears throat> yeah. And I and and I wonder what it's like to work at a bigger scale sometimes. So I, you know, I've been I've been toying. I got a couple upcoming projects 
and I'm playing with size. Um, and, and so, I mean, I'm going to keep the smoking worm consistent and my new zine, which is smoking worm monograph, it will remain consistent. Although the format style will change depending on how many words, uh, you know, words. And so, um, the first two are actually very small, but they have extra cards so that makes them a little more expensive, uh, equivalent to what I do for smoking worm in terms of cost. And then, um, not more a little more expensive and then the later ones will be thicker without cards and stuff and so they're really they're designed to be a monograph something where i intensely explore one topic so my, my intent i think it, my my reason for going to six by nine i think has more to do with i started with eight and a half by eleven and I, and I crammed everything in and it's like, you know what, I'd like a little bit more margin. So really what I'm doing is just saying I kind of want to keep similar to the format of the the eight and a half uh, or the five and a half by eight and a half. But I want to actually have a little more room for text or for the margin and also maybe between columns and may add a little bit of space. So one of the things I've been working on <clears throat> is a couple of uh, modules. I don't do modules and large. I do location settings. And, uh, and I want to be able to, I, I've been thinking about what is the ideal module? Uh, I call mine uh, set pieces, right? So a location description piece. What does that look like? And 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 what is and what's the functionality difference between the judge, the, the person who's running it, and the player, the person who's receiving it or experiencing? It? And how do you optimize that? One of the things I've never been truly happy with is um, while modules can be wildly, fantastically wonderful. Um, I don't think the layout on modules is very good. And um, and so, um, you know, there, I've always wanted little notes on the side that remind me to link things on different pages together and stuff like this. Uh, little eye catches, right? The judge. Um, and so I, I've always wondered if, uh, if modules shouldn't be built with more, with layout and design that is attuned to the person running it to catch their eye and say, hey, don't forget that this thing relates to the other thing on page 32 or whatever, right? Um, because one of the things that I have a problem when I run through a module is I often forget those things or I can't find them. I, I, I think I know, hey, there's the link, but then I have to like hunt for it, right? And, um, and so one of the things that we've been playing with, uh, Caitlin and I, is, is, uh, is better design in uh in, in location in yeah i think there's a lot of opportunity and it does not i don't consume a lot of modules but i know the ones adventures and such that i've actually have read and maybe tried to run i usually find very poorly designed for the gm to it may be okay to read but when you go to actually run it, it makes no sense, or it's very difficult, or you're paging through stuff, and it's not clear what, what's important, what's not, what's, you know, what links to what, and how it, it's just like, I don't really understand why major publishers cannot spend a little bit more time and just get an editor to properly make sure an adventure is easy to run at the table. Right. And, and okay, so there, I think that comes in two flavors, the problem that we're discussing. I think that one of them is editorial control and bloat and a desire by several companies to work in hardback format for modules. 
Yeah. Okay. Which, which means that which means that having anything below sixty four pages is just about not worth your time. And so one hundred and twenty. Well, I think it's yeah. Not only is it just the it's not the page count that matters, but they want to take you to fifteenth level in those pages too. Yeah. And so that's really hard to do. And so they end up reading like books. Um, um, you know, I haven't bought any of the fifth edition modules because of that. Um, oh, uh, and I, and you I need feel, to do this to yourself once. Yeah. You need to suffer once for us, Trevor. Well, well, I did. I did suffer. I, I suffered through Fantasy Flight's Warhammer series. As a matter of fact, I was a primary playtester for them at that time. So I've got my name through tons of credits of, of the Warhammer stuff that they did. And uh, and consistently, I kept writing them notes saying, I, I love the concept behind, you know, this product, say Chaos Commandment, which is one that we playtested. I said, however, you cannot functionally run this, right? <laughs> this, this, is, this is essentially a novel, and it's written in paragraph format with, with the, the, the motivations of NPCs laid out across 20 or 30 pages for one NPC. I'm like, this is not, this is insane. So, uh, you know, as a judge, I have a hard time wrapping my head around uh, a non-player character or whatever this, whatever the thing is that I'm looking at. I mean, when a room description goes to four pages, eight and a half by 11, right? <laughs> Block text, you know that you're really writing a novel and you're not writing a module. And so, um, so the question is, is, does bulleting help? Does numbering help? Does creating smaller chunks, right? creating flavor text, for those who want it, um, creating highlight callouts in the flavor text for those who want to paraphrase. One of the things that I've been playing with, um, and I've, I've now, I have a set piece. My first set piece location is done. Manuscript is completely finished. I've play tested it about a half a dozen times um, and everything. One of the things we're adding are situational um, tables. So that everybody who is in a room or in a space perceives things a little differently. Some people pick up on different cues and we randomize those so that players have a different experience and then, and then have a reason to communicate, right? Hey, did anybody hear that thing? That sounded like an alligator, <laughs> you know? Right. And everyone's like, no, I didn't hear that. Where was that from? And you're like, oh, it's coming down here. You know, so it gives the players a reason to interact instead of, you know, okay, room three, it has a dusty skeleton and some treasure in the corner. We'll roll for initiative, which is kind of boring. And um, it's, that, it's that question between role-playing and role-playing, right? Um, that has been going on in role-playing games since the 70s, since the beginning. Well, I think the thing, too, is, you know, I think it's, I don't want to say it's two different brains, but, you know, there's the, there's the creative part where a person says, you know what, I have a direction for this, this adventure. I got these ideas and they put it on paper and that takes one type of thinking. Yeah. And there's another type of thinking the saying, okay, how do we convey this information to the audience that we want to convey it to in the most efficient manner? And that, and that's right. So that to me, we talked about the, I said it came in two flavors. The first flavor is editing, right? Making sure that you're not writing a novel. The right, second right. flavor is design making sure that your things are laid out in a way that are functionally useful versus, you know, just making the best use of, making the most use of space. So the most use of space and the best use of space are not the same thing. Right. And, right. and so if you're trying to jam in something into 16 or 32 or eight pages or 64 pages, which are kind of the general module ranges that I've seen, and 
<clears throat> you want you've gotten a little bit wordy. Um, you know, you're going to sacrifice illustrations. You're going to sacrifice space and everything. And and so um, there's been a trend. You know, the reverse of that is the are, are the games like my understanding is Troika, Morkboard, and things like this, where everything is on a page, right? Uh, Mothership does this too, if I remember correctly. And they're trying to give you everything you can on a single page. Well, that's not always possible. I'm looking for some fine balance between that, but I'd like to have 90% of what I need for any given encounter on a page. And then I'd like to have call out when I need to go to another page so that I'm like, oh, this is here, or I need to make a note that this monster died. It's not going to be here, and I can go to that page and make that note. Um, and it would be great if something is super important. If you have a creature that's important in two locations, but if it dies in location A, something different happens in location B. Um, for me to make a note of that and just like have a checkbox, this monster died. Oh, now I know. I, I think they could be true for like wandering monsters. You may have a a set group that's a set size, but you may meet a portion of them yeah. randomly, and then they need to be removed from that tally, both as in the overall dungeon as well as the random encounter outside. And, 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 and it may be heresy, but I think modules are meant to be written in, right? I think judges are meant to take notes in them. Yeah, Mortimer Adler said, I think this is in How to Read a Book. I, I believe he said that you don't own a book until you write in it. And so, so for instance, um, you know, one of the rooms that, that I'm working in and one of the things that I created has a whole bunch of traps and they have reset time and they have number of, you know, the, the trap can go off three times before it needs to be reset. And so giving those little trackers on the margins, really, really helpful, right? Because I'm not going to remember if players have been dumb and they've set off a trap four times versus three times. How that, you know, you know, because I don't know about you, but Although I play weekly, sometimes um, we don't always play the same thing. And so I may be returning to something a year later. And Yeah, I, that's where I think in some ways I'm, I'm, I'm against, even though I don't normally play games that have like a counter like resets or whatever, but I think I'm kind of more into a random generator like, or random if it does or doesn't go off or whatever it may be. There's, I think we need, for me at the table, I much prefer something that I don't have to keep track of that I can determine the die roll. Or something. You can, you can certainly set that up that way, but it, it it doesn't take much effort to put those little trackers in the margin if yeah. you have enough margin. Yeah, and I so. think the other thing too is right, right. Exactly what you're saying. You're you're what you're doing is you're making. I'm sorry. So you're kind of putting you're making both a adventure, but also kind of a worksheet for the GM at the same time. Yep. Yeah, and I'm and I'm leaving it on the page that you need it. Yeah, right? but nobody's gonna write in that zine if you're. Gonna I'm gonna write in my zine. <laughs> <laughs> What you need to do, maybe we can do, you know, I guess people, if, I guess it goes to another thing. I wonder how many people, the other thing is you can just make a, a version that's, that's printable so people can use. That might be an idea too. You could, you could. Um, and you know what? I mean, certainly um, I have printed zines uh, that were PDF only, but laid out to be printed. Um, and and saddle stitch stapled, stapled them myself and, and folded them and everything. That's a thing. Um, but you know, I mean, I believe that a written thing, a module, is a utilitarian device as well as being a thing of art. Yeah, but once people start putting them in plastic sleeves, <laughs> it's just not going to happen. <laughs> right, but I mean, 
so collectors do that right yeah. i mean you know there's there is a collector's market yeah but, that, but uh you know for every every for every comic book that went into a sleeve you know a hundred got destroyed and they were loved and they were they were looked at many times and i think the same thing is true with module um you know for as as quote-unquote rare as some of the first edition D modules seem to be now um you have to remember that at a certain time they had print runs in a, of a hundred thousand a year Right, it's insane. That is insane. A hundred. If you know what, if if you and I could sell a hundred thousand of something, um, we we would certainly be happy people. Um, uh, and and it would be a logistical nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> but but uh, but you know, I mean, you know, if you think about it, so that means that things like uh, Tomb of Horrors, uh, the G series, you know, have at least. I mean, nobody knows what the true print run on those are but it has to be several hundred thousand were originally printed. And, um, and so, and the same thing is true with, you know, a comic book that in the eighties got up to a hundred thousand print runs. Finally. Um, so, you know, wow. I mean, you would think that they would be falling off trees. Right. Exactly. Metaphorically as a gamer, that they would always be in those locations where you were at, but clearly people tore them apart and, and abused them and, you know, spilled, uh, Dr. Pepper on them, or whatever it was they were drinking at the time, and uh, you know, and so yeah, they didn't they didn't survive. Certainly not in great condition, which is why they're valuable. Yeah, and I think uh, there, and I think what you bring up is a great point. It's just, uh, I just, I don't know. The thing too, I guess, the thing is, you want it in the book as you're doing it, so you don't really want a separate booklet for your zine, right? Because now you can track a two th- two documents. That's not fun at the table. Yeah, yeah I don't know. I, I think with the I think with the um, uh, playing around with with Forge and with their uh, journal system. Uh huh. I think that there's a lot of opportunity. It makes things like referencing other areas easy, and referencing monsters easy, and taking notes easy. But of course, the cost is there's an upfront cost of setting that all that stuff up and and having to have internet and all that kind of stuff. So it, it is kind of a dilemma, you know, as a GM keeping track of information. That's that is always that is the hard thing, especially since usually we're on the spot. So there's a little bit of of adrenaline going or or tension yep. of trying to not keep the game going, but yet you also need to find information. And I think there's still. I think like you, because I when I put stuff together, I try to think a lot about, you know, that kind of, uh, you know, the information flow. And I think there, we still are nowhere near where we need to be. I think people start doing different things. I don't think, kind of like you, I think individually, they're great ideas. They may not be the right idea, but I think eventually we will come to better practices. Yeah. I think we know what's bad so practices, but we don't know what the right. best practices are. So, so that's why I've been exploring that, uh, you know, so, so it's been, it's been something of, you know, how can I find the, the layout and organization that I need to be a functional piece of utilitarian writing um, and still not sacrifice the cool factor that makes these situations really fun for players. And, um, and, and another thing, think of it, it's not just writing. It's also art. I think we've talked about this before. 
the, the great art in modules is wasted on the person who doesn't need it the most, right? Um, because you either have to hold your module up and say, look, don't look at the text, right? Or you have to photocopy it and copy it, or you, you know, you have to get a digital version and print out just the art, take a screenshot or something. And so um, that's why when we produced this first issue of Smoking Worm Monograph, we put um, I commissioned art from an artist, um, and I commissioned him to do just the art that the players needed to see. Now I reproduced parts of that is as and stuff for the judge where I needed where I had room um, but, but we put those on on tarot cards is what we're, we're putting them on tarot cards so that so you can just hold a card up and say this is who you see um, and the player and you know that there's no information that's important on that side of the card and then uh, and then on the back of the cards we'll put the stat blocks and everything too in case you just want to run off those um, or, and, and I think that was the genius of the, the older modules some of them but it seemed to get lost, you know, like the uh, uh, Barrier Peaks, for instance. Yeah, it had the insert that pulled out. But the failure was they'd have like, sometimes multiple images on one page. Yep, so that's the problem. So then you have this problem of, okay, now I've got a set of art cards, like First Issue Smoking Worm has, I think it's 18 or 17 cards. And I got a book, right, that has the module in it. What do I do in terms of how do I haul these both around you know, in a, in a good fashion without losing one. And so what we decided to do was take the inside back cover and put a sleeve in it, like you would have for a library card. Um, and, um, and then, uh, and then put so that it could fit the art cards in the back. And then you could carry the whole thing together. Um, <clears throat> and so I'm exploring, I'm exploring what that means. Um, and and everything and so that's been an interesting design dilemma um, to have to play with these things. I think the the I think your I think the idea of tarot cards is as far as aesthetically superior. But what got me thinking was you could just also and on a cheaper not for you, but I mean for myself thinking about this is that one could also do at the back of the book one image per page. You could. But it's gonna, it's gonna, it's it could potentially, you know, significantly eat up your page. I mean, if you have a set page count, it's gonna eat up a lot of pages. It potentially, that's right, or a number of pages. And so, so, um, so the art cards are kind of cool because they can be used for multiple things. Um, sometimes I don't know if you've ever encountered this, but sometimes an NPC becomes a player character, um, or gets adopted and becomes like a retainer or something. Yeah, so it's really nice to be able to just hand the player. Here, here's the creature, and um, and here is its stats on the back. So that's a useful utilitarian thing as well. And then um, and everything. So so there's so there's some advantages and disadvantages, and you have to weigh the pros and cons of those things. The other thing that it allows us to do is for those who want to work in a digital space, because the art is designed for player consumption, I don't have to do much digital editing to make virtual tokens and stuff like this, right? That's just a matter of right. Thing out a circle or whatever and keeping the, the monster there <clears throat> making digital pogs and whatnot and um and so that's kind of cool because it, it allows me to use that art in different ways um it was it has been a really interesting design process and so and my you know my daughter who is that, that primary designer um 
you know, Caitlin and I go back and forth. You know, I have certain sensibilities. She has certain sensibilities. I have certain design requirements. Well, does Caitlin, does she play RPGs? She did once or twice. I traumatized her too much. <laughs> and so she won't play with us uh, anymore. But, um, but uh, yeah, um, she has in the past. So she has, she has some, uh, you know, she has some understanding of how that works. Right. What she doesn't have is, you know, 35 years of running experience. And well, and I think the thing is she's got, she's got, I won't say real world experience, but outside experience. So she, she has her chops as far as layout, but she just doesn't have the intimate knowledge of the subject matter. Yeah. And so, so that's a nice marriage, right? Yeah. Although sometimes we butt heads on things. But I'm like, no, I need this here and this here. Um, you know, one of the things that we've been experimenting with is increasing the outside page margin, not the inside page margin, but the outside page margin. Um, to put little call outs and stuff in yeah. and those trackers in. And so there's a functional space that the game master can rely on that says when something is here, it means you need to pay attention. And that's where I think if you go up on, if, if you're not doing it for a smoking worm, you can go up on your, on your size of your zine and it would accommodate it. Right. And so, so for, for monograph, it's still at the same size. It makes it kind of hard, but it is possible for shorter things to do it that way. Um, when I have moved on to like, I've got a new product line that's going to come out. Oh, I think I'm going to do a Kickstarter in June or July for the first one. It's called Sandbox Set Pieces. And, um, and that'll come out and it'll have, um, it will be in a six by four format. That's the format. And, and it, you know, has a little discussion, discussion in the front as to how these things work. I resurrected a, uh, a, a grammar tool from the 13th century. Um, in order to work with it, and uh, which is kind of fun, and um, and so uh, yeah, so it's been it's been interesting to play with. It's it you know to me trying to trying to crack that nut of making something utilitarian and and still cool and useful is is from a designer point of view is the kind of the thrill, right? That's the can I get this to really work the way I want it to work, the way I think it should be able to work. Um, that that has a huge deal, and uh, everything it re- it requires creating a set of tools. It does, it does, and it's it's hard. I think you got the the fortune of having a group of people. I've been uh, so I've just hired my first um, uh, um, developmental editor. So I think I just needed for some things to get another set of eyes on it to think through. <coughs> Because it's easy for me to think a certain I mean, it's very easy for me to think a certain way, and it's not very clear or whatever it may be. I don't know. Um, but it's kind of good to have no set of eyes to say, you know, critically, this is not or this is good or you need to adjust here and adjust there beyond just a copy editor, just correcting grammar. Yeah. Or, exactly. or making word flow. No, yeah, correcting grammar, but, you know, correcting, you know, the, the clarity. <clears throat> and so, so I have, yeah, you're right. I do have both of those. And uh, I have, you know, I have a copy editor, I have a content editor, and I have a developmental editor team. Um, although I usually rely on just one or two people for that. Um, and so those are people you need to be able to trust. You know, you need to be able to, especially developmental editors, I find that you need to have a, a good rapport with them and, and everything. So, you know, hiring one out of the blue is, that's kind of, you know, that's, that's really commendable. 
That's right. <laughs> you, you, need, you need to build that re- relationship and, and understand that you're both working on the same page. Right? Oh, yeah. So I've discovered that, um, you know, just talking to other zine producers, why, you know, the reason we make these things is because at some level, we're dissatisfied with the product we were getting, right? Um, at, at some level, it's maybe not the only reason, but it's, it is some of the reason every single person I've ever met who produces their own zine looked at another person's product and said, I can do that the way I think it should be done. And, um, and so, so that, you know, yeah, a lot of different opinions there. There is, and I'm right. I think, yeah, if not even better, it's just like, I just have an idea too that I don't see is out there. Yeah. Or it's if just, you do see it out there, I could execute it in a different manner or a better manner. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, but that's, that's why we do what we do. That's the cool thing. Oh yeah, exactly. And it's, and it's, and, and, and I think for us too, it's like, you know, for me, it's like, I also know that what I'm wanting to put out, I mean, we can all just on our own crank out a word file, print it out and send it out into, into the wild. But we really want it to just be the best thing that maybe that it can be, but something the best that we can make it within a reasonable scope. Exactly. I mean, for 25 years, I produced word files for my friends that we use at the gaming table. Right? Yeah. Whether we were playing Vampire and we were creating Google rules because they hadn't come out yet, or whatever the game was, you know, we created a custom character, player character class, and here it is. I even have, I have this really cool artifact that I recovered, or that I discovered years ago, it would have been the early 90s, very early 90s. I came across a group, uh, I was a I was a military brat, and so I was. My dad was stationed in Alamogordo, New Mexico, um, at um, why is at White Sands Air Force Base. And so I came across a group of gamers. They were all GIs, and um, and they had been gaming, but but two or three of them had come from Wisconsin and uh, and Michigan, and they had been gaming in some of the kind of ancestral gaming groups that had spawned out of the original TSR. Kind of people that had that had formed TSR and stuff, they had a loose accumulation of literally dot matrix printed handouts that were like the the running notes for somebody you know for what they they actually mentioned they were, they were like look these are these are these were games that came out of some of Gary Gygax's early work on Greyhawk, so they had all these notes on Greyhawk that were never published, and they you know they and and so I got a copy of those those are great I mean so. So yeah, I mean, we worked with Word files for years, um, even before right. there was Word. And so, um, you know, but it's but it's the the cool thing is is you know working with artists and getting it laid out and making it look professional. Right, and that's what you need to do. I mean, you need up the game in order to get the funds to be able to to make the product what you really want it to be. Yeah, absolutely. You, you maybe some people are lucky. I mean, some people are, you know, they're great artists and they can do the layout and they can write. And they don't have to go anywhere, and um, and so I mean that's a route I kind of tried to take. <laughs> it was going to take me uh, thirty-seven years to get to that point. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and and I work on a little bit of it, uh, of the other things. You know, I mean, I've been working on PageMaker or InDesign now since it was PageMaker two and um, and so I have some design things, and and that was actually a route that I considered doing as professionally for a long time because I loved it. So I've done it for years just on the sly but you know caitlin's faster and oh yeah 
In fact, I, I actually I got my daughter. Uh, she's doing the layout for Fane of the Fly God. Yeah. And so, so anyway, she's also like you. I mean, I've been working. I've been improving my skills. I'm getting better and better and better. Uh, but you know, she's still way better than I am. <laughs> it's yeah. like, and she can bring also. You know, I, I can find myself. I'm just making changes in my abilities as I go. I'm, but I'm not able to like make. Like as far as styles go, I'm not able to make radical changes, you know, in ways of thinking. So it's like I get them better. I can I can see different ways of doing things, but I can't see things in radically different ways where she can do that. Yes, yes, I would agree. So there's there's a generational difference there, but I like having that skill, even though I'm slow, because I can kind of work on things on before we have a conversation. Right? I can do a layout and say this is where I'm headed. Thinking wise, this is right. my brain is trying to put these things on the page and explain to you how I want it laid out. And it's good to have a mock up of that. Um, so I can say, this is how we should execute this. This to me makes sense in a utilitarian fashion. Um, and then she'll come in and say, well, this is crap now. And she'll change it. We should tweak this here and put this here. Yeah. And I think that's just it. I mean, the use of space, the use of, you know, letting the, all these, there's a lot of other factors that sometimes you can vastly improve something without necessarily making huge changes, but it's just, yeah. it's just that, you know, it's just like I say, I, I, everything I've been doing so far from the beginning when I, I, my first, my first personal zine, which is really taking reformatting caves of chaos and redrawing the, the caves. It was my very first thing all the way to where I'm at now. It's just been, one step at a time where, right. uh, where it's like, that's the only thing I can do is one step beyond what I'm doing now, not five steps or three steps sideways or seven steps the other direction. It's just, um, that's where it comes in. You know, if somebody's got the, you know, who, who's done many different things and I've done many different things. Yeah. So, and it's, I think there, I think, you know, it's still going back to design, usability, design space. And I think, you know, there's, there's so much room. I think even though I don't own Morkborg, um, and even though there's some zines I picked up, I really hate for the readability. I, I, it does go to show that the design space within RPGs, I'm glad that they're pushing boundaries. I, even though there are areas that I think have gone too far, but I still think it's a great thing that it's, it's such a, a vital medium. It's not just a, you know, a set. This is what it must be. Right. Yeah. And you know what? You need people to push those boundaries to understand where that boundary exists. There's you know? a saying, and I think it's true. Maybe not universally true, but they, the, the, the question is, how do you uh, know if you've gone far enough? Is you go too far and pull back? So sometimes, yeah, so these people sometimes may be going too far, but still it's like, that's good. Just out back a little bit and we'll, we should, you know, it'll be even better. But it just takes those people going too far and even ourselves going too far, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, so that was, you know, I mean, you know, that kind of ties in with your conversation you had with Phil Reed the other day, right? And Phil was saying, you know, I love this Morkboard concept. Yeah. But I need mine to be Phil Reed's version of Morkboard. Um, because it needs to be readable. And, and I agree with him, you know, I mean, I have glasses and, 
and uh, and 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 slowly but surely, it's uh, you know my vision is changing, and and you know my eyes need to be able to appreciate something on the page to run it. Uh, and if they can't understand what they're looking at, um, you know, that's a problem. That doesn't mean I don't think it's aesthetically not nice and pleasing. It means that you know I think that um, that for me that doesn't work. <laughs> Well, it's like, for me, it's like Coriolis, beautiful book. And I mentioned on one of the podcasts, but if they offered another version that was like the old traveler, where it's just, just mostly text, just a little bit of pictures and just formatted in two columns. I'd buy that just yeah. to be able to run it. <laughs> and they just reformatted it and made it clear. I'd have one copy. Okay. This is a beautiful one to look at. This is one one to skim through, but this is the copy I really use. This is the copy I write in. This is the copy. But I don't think there's any sales model that really, or it's probably marketing wise doesn't make any sense. But it's like there's a number of books. It's like they're beautiful books, but my goodness, I I really wouldn't mind just a stripped down, no nonsense, you know, type of uh, book to go with the beautiful book. I agree, um, and I'll give you a good classic example of that. I have the I forget if it was twenty or twenty fifth, probably twenty fifth anniversary version of Chaosium's Call of Cthulhu. That was the first premier Smithsonian leather bound. It was it's a green version. It has um, it has the um, the star on it, the star symbol, and uh, either in red or gold. And so I bought those when they came out. They made like I don't know two hundred and fifty or one hundred twenty five of them. And um, and and so you know it's a beautiful version of the book. They totally reformatted it, relayed it out. Uh, this was back in fifth edition, and uh, and I got it and I was super excited. And I opened the book and I discovered that it was near illegible, um, that I could not actually, I mean, I could appreciate it for a beautiful piece of work, but I couldn't appreciate it as this was not a book I was going to be able to game with the table. And so, um, so I have five copies of uh, Call of Cthulhu 5th edition because that's the edition that I can read the best. Um, you know, and so as the editions have gone on over the years, I have just accumulated that 5th edition printing in the softback um, Sorry, I've got a cat playing in my window. That's uh, okay. <laughs> in in the softback version, and I just bought them for four or five bucks a piece whenever I found them, so that I could hand them out to players, so that we could just say, "Look, I'm going to play fifth edition. You don't have to worry about it. I know that you know sixth and seventh edition exist, but we're going to go with this one. And here's a copy. So. Well, and it probably wouldn't be hard. I don't know. Uh, you know, I'm not a a um. And a run, we don't really. Uh, they call Cthulhu is actually we've, Cthulhu games have actually been other systems, but I, it probably wouldn't be that that difficult to just make some as a GM some changes using the seventh edition without having to, to to use new books for the players. I would imagine. Um, you know, my understanding is they're very similar. I've just never bothered to buy them because I have five copies of fifth, <laughs> and yeah. that game works great. So. I, yeah, I think there's some things that, that that's really well liked, but I I don't know them enough to be able to yeah espouse them. But it's, but but it does seem like the changes between editions of Cthulhu uh, are much less than they are, say, between versions of D and D. Oh, absolutely, right. I mean, it's not like they're going to throw out the basic role playing game with Call of Cthulhu. It is the basic role playing game, and so um, system that Chaosium put together. They're going to tweak things like how occupation packages work and stuff like this it's going to be really minor stuff right the yeah system I, has not changed 
I thought the Delta Green, I was really impressed when I played a, in a Delta, we played a kind of, a, I'll call it a campaign. Um, I was really impressed with, it's a more stripped down version yeah. of basic role playing, but I thought it was actually perfect. Yeah. You know, that basic role playing system, um, Chaos Sim has a great, I mean, it's been, it's been through multiple iterations, through superheroes, through high fantasy, through low fantasy, um, through horror. Um, and it, it is a good workable system. And, uh, and so I certainly have a, you know, it, it has a, has a spot in my life uh, and I enjoy playing those games. I don't play Call of Cthulhu as much as I could, but, uh, but, you know, when we do, we, we kind of go all in for six months to a year. And then to me, what I think, what I don't like uh, is less about the mechanics and it's just the, the enormous number of Skills to me, it makes more sense to consolidate them down. Hmm. Um, you know, sure. It, so in that in that instance, role master is going to be a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> but I have to tell you, in terms of skills, I have uh, long appreciated the role master system. I think that it has a beautiful way of reducing everything to a skill check. You know, I mean, whether it's hit point creation. That's a skill. Um, whether it's um, casting magic, that's a skill. Um, and so they did away with the different subsystems, and they just said we have one subsystem to rule them all, and it works like this. And they've been very consistent. Throughout. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's like the difference between, let's say, I'm not sure if I'm not going to say Cthulhu has call Cthulhu has this or basic role playing, but like, yeah, swim skill, you got a run skill, you got a climb, skill. like just make athletics. Yeah. I, and I think to me is if your game, if your game focuses on a certain style of play, then those skills should be more broken down. And, and then, but the stuff that doesn't necessarily apply, like if your game is about fighting and it's a, and your game is about being, you know, it will say gladiators and, and having different skills and, and having maybe weapons broken down makes more sense but maybe some of your knowledge skills you just want one knowledge role but then if you're playing call of cthulhu you may just say you know what we need to consolidate a bunch of these weapon skills i don't need to know that whether it's a short sword long sword trident who cares you know this doesn't come up that often but what's important is you know do you have you know like say library use that that becomes important yeah and so so that you know interesting that you mentioned delta green because you know early in the days of the prior to delta green um the you know they were doing uh, unspeakable oath the very early unspeakable oath had like a, a two or three part series on firearms of world war one or firearms between 1890 and 1910 and literally had like 500 <laughs> firearms right and 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 those each had a different skill and you were like geez this is that's insane however what you had was you had somebody who was clearly a gun enthusiast yeah, right who, clearly a world war one enthusiast and is like well you know there's a difference between you know the way this one fires and the way that one fires and, and they're they're fundamentally different things it, it does it's true in the physical world but in the narrative world it doesn't really matter right yeah so what's the outcome so then you get to an extreme like dungeon crawl classics which literally has an equipment page that fits on a quarter of a page right for weapons and um and that's it you have like i know there can't be more than 25 weapons in that game standard right. uh, and so uh, so you know or or you have palladium's compendium of, of weapons 
I don't know if you've ever seen that. That's a beautiful book. Um, and it just has yeah. thousands of different weapons in it and a very quick conversion system for different game systems in the back. Yeah, and I think, you know, and if your game if your game is about nuances of fighting, it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. But but, you know, and it's kind of like going back to the hero system where it was kind of made where you could make it more crunchy or you could make it more less crunchy. But, you know, the idea one guy was saying is like, you know, damage is pretty arbitrary. Like if you get stabbed with a knife, you're going to die just as quickly as you get stabbed with a sword or get shot with a gun. One stab and you're dead. I mean, y- y- you can look at it that way, too. It's like, y- y- you know, it's, it's a blade of steel going into your or, or lead going into your into your body. It's like yeah. you can get all nuancy, but still, you know, you get stabbed, you die. I mean, there's people that get stabbed with, you know, <coughs> with, a, with a small dagger and they, they're dead. Yeah. It just depends on where you hit. So, um. So, so you're right. Uh, you know that that's that's an interesting question. Uh, White Wolf uh, during the vampire time, you know, second edition vampire. I think it was first and second in the player's handbook. I guess that'd be the first edition player's handbook. Had um, primary skills, right, which was the ones that came on your character sheet, and then had secondary and tertiary skills, which added to that. So, if I was an occultist, I could have you know intelligence plus occult. So could the fighter guy standing next to me. But then I could lay in additional skills below that that all stack or gave me different benefits. And that makes and, sense. And that was interesting because not everybody had to use them. But for people who really wanted to be, I want to know exactly what Archimedes blah, blah, blah does, right? Um, you, could, but, you, know, you could really. But, but you could like have like melee skill. Yeah. It's that. But then your sub skills could be knife, sword, trident, whatever. And then, and then you could get into even further sub, uh, you know, third tertiary skills. Yeah, too. that's a little crazy there. <laughs> you know, I am just a master of the kopesh. Right? I mean, if it's not a kopesh, I'm not rolling with any guys. And so, um, yeah, yeah. But what it did was it allowed for that scope, right? And so um, the benefits got less and less, if I remember correctly, as you drilled down into something. And it, I mean, there's probably a certain amount of elegance to that, and I shouldn't, I shouldn't do that. I think just for me, I tend to want something more simple. But you're right. It, but it, it doesn't require that level of complexity. It's just that the player wanted, if they got enjoyment out of that, they they could go to that detail without breaking the game. Yeah, yeah. And then the player who didn't care about that didn't even have to think about it. Yeah. And they still had skills, right? And that was the primary thing was that, you know, it's a pool system, so it's skill plus attribute. And so they were like, yeah, I'm just pulling these things together. And okay, that guy gets 10 extra dice, but, you know, he spent a whole bunch of extra XPs on these sub skills that I just don't care about. And, I, you know, I, I now, can, you know, I bought, a, I bought a discipline and levitate this guy. So, <laughs> you know, it all, it all evens out in the end. And, uh, and so, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so those are those are the things that I think about when I think of design, um, you know, and and I think, um, yeah. Well, since since we were not getting the topic that I really intended to, that's okay. Let's just let's, let's go we can further. Talk flies, if you want to talk flies, <laughs> no, we need no to problem. warm up and, and do a whole session on flies. So no, we we're, we're going to keep going because the flow is here, and because you you, I think this is also a tie-in to a question that you posted on the rpg zine group yeah about like it, once you go ahead and kind of restate what that question is before i st- restate it wrong 
Which one? Which question? I've asked it was about your, about the process for getting like getting. I was like getting work done for a project. Like, what's your method? Oh yeah, I think I asked the question, and this actually ties into. Uh, so I have started co-hosting a, a podcast, a little Twitch channel thing called the Scrivenery, with uh, Ed Stanek, who is a uh, who is a fellow Cincinnatian, but also a DCC RPG. Are you are you putting this on Anchor too? I don't know. Why don't you, you know record the? Just record I record the audio. It. I record it, and then um, and then Goodman deals with all that. It's part of you know. We I'm just I'm just co-hosting it. I'm not the primary. They need partner. to be putting that on anchor. I'll listen to. I don't watch. I don't watch on Twitch. Not because yeah. I hate Twitch, but I I I listen to consume audio. Well, you know, I'll I'll pass that on because um, I know it eventually goes to YouTube, but I don't think it ends up as podcast. But you know what? I mean, it really could. Although we do often reference visual things. We I don't care. Yeah, you you get at least one person on listening to your podcast if it goes audio. Yeah, all right, I'll let them know. <laughs> so so Ed and I were we were talking about you know we kind of went through this was a, a general tutorial on how to create third party games and everything and and just like some of the general thoughts right and then I was like well I'd love to do uh, an issue an episode on um, Muse. Right. And so I think I asked the question on the Facebook group, uh, on the RPG uh, um, zines group, you know, what is the muse that drives you the motivation thing that helps you get to the end of the day um, and finish the project? Um, I think that was kind of perfect. Um, and that was tying in. I was actually looking for feedback that I was going to pull. Into that. OK, I thought you were more from an analogy. You're saying what is the muse? Yeah, it is. What is the muse? Right. So a muse is a motivator. <sighs> Uh, it could be a person or it could be a thing or a concept. It doesn't even have to be a person. Um, and so it is, how do you get things done? You know, what is it that drives you or what is it that you can use to inspire you to finish a project? And, uh, and we got, I got a whole bunch of cool, interesting feedback on that. Uh, you, you participated in it. Um, you know, a lot of people talked about music that drives them. And certainly that's true. Um, I am a big believer in wordless music while I'm writing, um, <clears throat> if I'm doing art or an illustration, like I do technical drawings sometimes for, I'm working on right now one for the, uh, the aerial book that I was working on that we chatted about prior to you starting recording, um, uh, that, that documents the boundary layers and talks about wind movement and doldrums and yeah. this kind of stuff. So I've been working on this technical document. So I will listen to worded music when I do that, you know, some like artists, whether it's, dire straits or whatever but i'm a huge believer in sound scores uh and soundtracks to drive me while i'm writing um, so so I, let me rephrase because i think I, I i stated but i think my my it's different it's way different for me oh yeah so what you're saying <clears throat> is you you are you have a project in mind and you're trying to find a muse to inspire you to uh the directions you need to go that's one way to look at it or the other way to look at it is i want to build something but i don't quite know what i want to build right most of the time i find that the 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 thing that strikes me to to motivate me to build something comes out of a random location i'll be walking down the grocery aisle i'll see a cover to some metamucil box or something and i'll go oh my god i need to create you know brains for my fantasy game um, or whatever it happens to be, right? I mean, things will just pop into my head. It's a horrible, horrible uh, thing to have happen to you in an inconvenient spot um, most of the time. 
And so I keep a notebook that I drop, that I drop things. I, so it doesn't go like that for me. What what happens to me is it, it's I do see something, but it's not a it's not a like oh I need to do something. It all of a sudden becomes a compulsion. It yeah. becomes an irrational driving compulsion that will not leave me alone until I do it. Yeah, and so I find that that I can get like thought earworms where they just won't go away, and uh, and I <laughs> will continue to write on things. That's why I carry a notebook. So I actually have. A, by the way, a, 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 a six by nine notepad, a little folded journal that I take with me and I have it in a leather case. So I can, uh, it's just in a leather binder. So I carry it everywhere I go. If I leave the house right now, it's actually sitting in my car because I haven't brought it in, but that's where I can write notes no matter where I'm at, whether I'm traveling, um, it's small enough to carry with me, whether I'm just going on errands, you know, when I'm sitting outside the grocery store and an idea hits me. I try and jot those things down and then expand on them later. So it never works for me that way. So, or sometimes I'll go and sit while my daughter is gaming, my youngest daughter, she'll go to games and I'll sit there cause it's only going to be a three hour thing. And while I'm listening to them, I'll be thinking of ideas and stuff. So, so that's I, one. That's so one I can't really think of ideas. I really yeah. just, yeah, it's, it's, um, I shouldn't say I never think of ideas. I might kind of have an idea, but generally I just have to write it out. So you have a thought and you're like, I need to develop this. Is that how? That yeah, works? it's like a direction. It's like, it's like, you know what? I have to, I have to walk to Chicago. Yeah. I have to walk to Chicago, but maybe I don't really have a compass initially. I just start walking. And then somebody says, it starts pointing. I'm like, okay. And I will get to Chicago, but I, I there's never like, it feels like what you do in some ways is you get bits and pieces and you start putting together, like I think you mentioned a structure where I will just start walking. Yeah. And so, so sometimes that happens that way. Um, I have a structure, I have an idea. This is something that I want to produce. Other times uh, this happens a lot with my game world. Um, <clears throat> my game world eventually got enough detail that I, I started creating an encyclopedia entry entry systems. I have an encyclopedia for my game book that I've written. And, um, and, it's, and it's just a word file, as a matter of fact. It's not laid out or anything. And if I am finding myself, I, I, I want to create, but I, I don't know what I want to create, I will sit there and I will add entries to my encyclopedia. And so what I'll do is I'll go through the encyclopedia and find something and say, ah, I mentioned this here under this entry. Do I have an entry for it? No. Well, then I'll go add it and, I, and I'll make a note on the back of the page and I'll expand on it. And that'll lead to more entries and that'll lead to more entries. And so what I found is I can get myself very inspired to write something and get really enthusiastic about something just by editing the encyclopedia, right? It takes no forethought. I simply open it to a random page and begin scanning for a reference that I have not included in the encyclopedia yet. It's in an entry, but doesn't have its own entry. And, um, and so I will then start adding entries. And so you really, problem. and I think you're, what you're doing is you're creating a different mental space than what you're currently in. You have to get into a mental space. Yeah, absolutely. And so, so when I, you know, when I want to do that, but, you know, I mean, because so, sometimes I have an intellectual drive to work on it, but I find that my brain is burdened by worldly cares, right? <sighs> Whether it's I've got to do the bills or the dishes or I need to vacuum, but I really don't want to. I'd rather be writing. <laughs> and these things don't leave my mind. Um, I can get myself in that space 
very quickly by doing that. Yeah, normally I'd save it for those times. There's plenty of other things that I can do that don't require that that brain being in that space. Right. So, and I think you wrote that, right? You said there's there's the make stuff up MS. Yeah. Right? There's the make stuff up phase and then there's the non-make stuff up phase. Yeah. <laughs> and uh and so yeah, but that make stuff up phase is really important, right? It is. Uh, <laughs> no, it's it's crucial. But I will say though, you know, I you know, I talk about the strong desire to go to Chicago, but I might get three quarters away to Chicago and say, you know, it's really not Chicago I need to go to. I really need to go to Madison, Wisconsin. Yeah. <laughs> and then I, then I start, once I get to Madison, it's like, well, actually, really what I need to do is I need to go 15 miles to the west. There's a, there's a location there. So that's kind of how it works. Yeah. It's For like you. there's a burning, like, I can see it very clearly, though it may change. But, but even what the essence of it is, is still there. So sometimes I find that I want to go to a certain place and work on something but it's too important to work on uh, i have a, i can't work on it yet and so i have to circumnavigate around it i have to create ancillary things that help support the main thing uh, it's hard to describe um when i'm working when i'm writing up things like i'm working on an organizational series of chapters for smoking worm right now so each issue is probably about four or five issues maybe 10 i don't I'm going to have a different organization um, and um, and they're going to tie in and have mechanics and everything. There's a whole thing that I'm working on, but there's a couple organizations that I've had long-term in my game that I want to write up. And this is a part of the motivator to do this series was to get to do those. Right. And what I've discovered is, is sometimes I have to, um, you know, I have to crawl before I can walk. And so I need to write up an organization that has nothing to do with the organization that I really want to work on in order to get my headspace around how I do that. And then I can, then I can focus on the organization that I actually care about. Um, and so, uh, so sometimes that's because it's emotionally loaded. You know, this is something that I've had with me for a long time. You know, it's been a part of my game world for a long time and it's important to me and I don't want to screw it up. So I'll go try something else first. Say, Oh, I can do that. So, now I can psych myself up to the thing I really want to work on. Or uh, sometimes I'm just not sure how I want to build it yet, so I'll go build something similar. Well, and I think that's another thing, too, because, like, for instance, I need to – I don't – there's nothing I've ever really written that's really been – that's not true. But it, I really don't write adventures. Yeah, me either. And I don't really write hex crawls. Yeah. But I need to, for, the, for a goblins project, I need to do kind of a hex crawlish kind of thing. So, but then now it's like, okay, now what do I do? I can't just write one because I don't know. So then I got to start looking at different ways. Like even for adventures, what I started doing for, um, one of the reasons I took uh, through Old Tan's door, I plan on running a, uh, it on, on Foundry. So I've been copying and pasting and putting it into journal entries into there, but that's forcing me to kind of look at what he's doing. And so it's like, there's ways that you can do something, another another activity that can help train you to look at things a certain way so that when you yes. go to do a thing, then you're like, okay, now I get it. Exactly. <clears throat> and that's why you, we, we have these big reference libraries, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so that we can go to look at other people, how people have done things 
and and say, "Ooh, I like that, but I wouldn't do it this way." Or sometimes I find something I'm like, "You know what? This is exactly how I would do it. I don't need to write this. It's done." Right. And, um, and so, uh, so then the question is, is you know, what else can I do? Maybe something adjacent for it. Yeah, because there's really ultimately, you know, even doing this, like I'll just I'll just let out the the the, the one of the things that's been driving me for a long time has been the, this concept of the forbidden city. Uh-huh. Or it's, it's, it's a massive land that's been sunken into the jungle and there's these factions. Right. And it's, it's, it is, I think it's got gems in it. It's a wonderful, wonderful setting, except it just fails in many ways. I think because of, who knows, time, page count, whatever it may be. But you know, my idea would be is to take that, but put it into a, a dimensional space and then having it kind of also have a lots of other odds and ends and have factions. I just realized I can't do that right now because there's so much I don't know how to do. Right. So you could do little chunks of, of, of similar things. You could write a couple factions. Yeah. So, or like the goblins, what I'm going to do, well, maybe what I learned from goblins, I can apply to that. Yeah, exactly. And so exactly. it's like, okay, there, and, and so sometimes I think when we have these things, it's kind of nice to, you still have them like, they're going to happen. I'm just not ready. But look at things that you can do that are productive things, whether it's for your personal game or whether it's for another writing project. And just think of ways you can step towards where you're lacking in order to get that to, to be filled in. Yes, I, I would agree with you. That's, so that's another way to motivate yourself or create a muse, get to your ultimate goal. <clears throat> you know, and you've created a couple projects along the way that either help support that uh, thematically or teach you the you know, the writing chops to get you there, right? Give you the and, and while I was writing the background for this, because I was just making stuff up, <laughs> I was, there's a big MSU uh, uh, going on. It informed the cosmology of the, uh, the Fane of the Fly God. Cool. And so it's like, as I'm realizing as I'm doing this, even though I don't necessarily, I don't have a setting, I don't really run, but like, okay, there's a cosmology that's going on here of, of law and chaos in my version of, of, thinking about law and chaos and what that means. And then they kind of start to inform each other. Yeah. And so, so that's why I'm working on this aerial monster book, right? Is I'm actually more interested in things like spell jammer and sky crawl and, and, uh, you know, crawl jammer and these kind of sky floating ship things. Yeah. And, and, and I was working on these aerial monsters for myself because I want to explore that space. And I'm like, well, you got to have critters up there. And then that's where the biologist kicks in. And he's like, well, how do you get critters, right? How do I put goblins in the sky, right? Um, and, and, and things. So I start looking at how that, you know, who else has done this, right? Who else has done something similar to what I want uh, to explore visually, narratively, and so on and so forth. And, um, and so, you know, then I'm like, well, you know, what is the sky made of with made of air? You know, there are different layers in the sky, there's different air densities there, but each of those have their own unique, you know, things, their properties. And, uh, and that becomes like, what's the difference between a top, a tropical jungle and a temperate jungle, right? Or a temperate rainforest and a tropical rainforest. 
you know, they're both rainforest, but they're very different. And so one of that, you know, so you start moving down that, that rabbit hole of what does the sky look like? What, how, what, you know, how does it interact? It, it's a place, but it's also multiple places. Have you thought about taking that same level of, we'll call it complexity, but apply non-scientific ways of so, thinking about it? So I do. I, I, I'm working in kind of a pseudo-scientific manner. Um, it's very hard for me to pull back from the concept of ecology and, and create, I don't want to make monsters that are just, this is a monster. There you go. No, but I mean, like for, for instance, like maybe, maybe there's a rainforest in this particular area because, uh, there is a, uh, a, an ancient other being that inhabits this. It's a, it's one of the elder, earth spirits and this is where she resides and where she sleeps for a thousand years and until she awakens so so the so the fact that you have the rain right doesn't preclude how the you know that the rainforest got there for right natural processes um but in general when you've got us you know you're going to have a lot of rainforests some of them are going to be natural right so so it's nice to define the background and then say now this is a special call out and right. um, and to me, you know, I have never seen a book that explores adventuring in skies, right, in air or in space, in a fantasy setting, that really distinguishes between layers of sky. But maybe they, like the layers could be like those are the domains of a particular group, and that is settled be. in a council back, you know, whatever. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And and so so, but they also, you know, there are things that just naturally can and can't exist um biologically right or need adaptations and that's what i'm kind of interested in is what are those adaptations how do you put a tree in the sky uh did you ever read larry niven's the integral trees oh my god i I have to tell you that the integral (laughs) trees and the smoke ring are two of my favorite books um bar none i have at least four copies of each it's, um, it's it's more interesting have, in what was going on with the world and how it worked than necessarily the storyline that was provided. Yeah. So I mean I mean so Larry Niven when he was in you know when when he was investigating the integral trees and in the idea of a smoke ring right um, and everything you know the location was the main character it right. wasn't it wasn't the characters right, right. It's, were, it's the tree it was the tree right <laughs> and 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 so um, I don't know when you read those I first read those as a teenager yeah me too. I read it once back in high school. Yeah, so I've read them about a dozen times, and I have the audiobooks. I've listened to them probably that many times too. Um, and um, and you know the plot's kind of thin. I don't have a problem with that. Larry Niven was writing for a different reason. Right. It's like H.P. Lovecraft didn't really like plot, right? Right. He liked atmosphere. Larry Niven was writing for atmosphere in those books, and uh, and and so that that's exactly where I went. I started thinking, how do I put things in the sky? Who's done that? Larry Niven's done it, right? Um, on a super hardcore science level, right? That just appeals to me because he was really talking about the physics and dynamics of right. Taurus clouds in space being torn apart by binary stars, and um, and that and what impact that had on people um, and on on other creatures. And so I'm like, oh, integral trees. Well, integral trees only exist in a Taurus cloud state because they have things, you know, stresses at both ends and everything. So if I don't have that situation, how else could I do it? 
And so I start looking at, at biology in general as always my default, you know, because it's the easiest thing to explain. And I'm like, oh, well, you know, I mean, there are leaves. Leaves are gas producers on trees and all plants. Um, chloroplasts and, every, and chlorophyll produces gas. It's a gas exchange mechanism. So what if those leaves were just modified to become gas bladder, right? Well, we have that. Uh, kelp has that, right? Those are modified leaves that have air uh, gas bladders that create air bubbles inside the plant to help keep buoyancy so that the actual kelp can, yeah. can rise to the surface. Um, even though it's at a level, it's rooted at a level where it normally wouldn't get sunlight. So that's not that far of a stretch to say, well, we can have trees that have plants uh, or, you know, you know, we have trees that have leaves that produce gas that create gas bladders. Um, and then what would things look like around? Them? And so, um, and the nice thing is, is once you've got a floating tree, you have a floating ecosystem and you have things that can come to the tree and things that can leave the tree and things that can move between trees. And you also have the interaction of the tree, like, like what happens when it rains. Yeah. Well, so, so think then is, does it rain in the sky? Well, sometimes it does, obviously, because in the lower, yeah. lower atmosphere, it rain, it falls from the sky where it condenses past condensation level, right? But when relative humidity goes over 100%, rain falls from the sky. Um, that, that air, that, that water vapor condenses to the point where it can, gravity pulls it down. So I have that situation in, in my game world, which, by the way, influenced by Larry Niven because it's a ring world. <laughs> And, um, and so, you know, I've been long fascinated with his writing. And so, um, so then I'm like, okay, so if I've got floating trees, what do they look like? Well, they don't look like an integral tree, right? Which is two tufts at the end in opposing fashion. They don't look like an, an arboreal tree. They don't look like, like a tree like you and I would have. They look different. And so how do they look different? And so then you could create a couple trees. So I've got a monster that's a tree. And it has different ages and things happen to it historically over time as it ages. And so it has different things that have impacted it that have never left because it, it has buoyancy that have, you know, uh, one of the things I loved about Larry Niven's work were, were the parasites and, and, and what we call uh, um, uh, parasitoid that lived off the trees and lived amongst them. Right. And so we have that in the real world. You have ants, and things like this. and and stuff that and, and woodpeckers and you know squirrels yeah. and and lots of animals that move up and down the tree and live in it and so that allows you to have these types of things then uh, creatures that may be limited in terms of movement through the sky but can in certain instances move and so they're they're up in these trees so i created uh, parasitic infestation you know as a tree ages it gets more and more parasite this is a monster right and i'm like Suddenly, this monster is an ecosystem, and it allows each one of those can be different. And so it's not just, oh, yeah, you roll up to a tree, right, in your skyship. It's you roll up to a tree, and by the way, uh, it has, it has, a, it has another, another skyship that's impacted in it. You don't know if that's a castaway where you have living people or if they've all died and they've become undead or something. You know? So that creates a whole set of environments and really you know, uh, influences my thinking on what monsters I put up in the sky, I guess. For sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And I think the thing is, is, you know, and I don't think everybody has to know it, but I think when it helps us to kind of make a world feel probably more reasonable, even if 
people aren't seeing all the gears and mechanisms rather than just being there's a gelatinous cube. There's a yeah. And so so that's the cool thing is, you know, what I spent the last two days writing was how do those layers of sky interact? How do winds move, right? Well, they're generated along the ring because of the ring moves in a spinward direction and that creates air movement, actually friction against the surface that picks it up. And so you start thinking about these biomechanics of of stellar objects um, and everything and, and how things move around. But that's really critically important. It's critically important for your creatures so you can understand how where you might encounter a creature in the sky traditionally. But it's also important for your airship, right? Because you need to know how they're going to move. And so um, just like there's a difference between a scree field and a, and a trail on a mountain, um, and you're going to get a wagon up the, the trail, but you can't get it up the scree field, you know, that, that's, that those are important nuances. Right. So, uh, so I spent like, I don't know, I wrote 2,000 words on this is what the layers look like, and here's the definitions, and all that's really important for me. Will, will that show up in the final product? I don't know. But it, it's certainly but at least inform the final product. Yeah, it's absolutely going to inform the final product. And depending on now that I'm playing with it as I'm writing it, which is always a nice combination, um, you know, it will, it, you know, I'll know whether I think it's absolutely essential, right? Is this something that I can just move to an encyclopedia entry in my game world and then it gets buried and I know all about it, but nobody else does? Or is this something that I think is really worth sharing with people because they might be able to get some utility out? Um, or yeah, and there's probably it's hard cool. to know the market, but you can almost see if you get a a good illustrator, <coughs> and and to just go through this and treat it kind of like a, a serious, like scientific book. Yeah, well, that's what I wanted to do, right? So, so I've had a character. His name is uh, Zolgi Harrison. Uh, since I was in high school. Who, you know, was always like it was yeah. always Zolgi Harrison's guide to the swamp monster, right? Yeah. And I would draw a picture and I would give it a title. And uh, as a kid, and I was like, so this is I, this is Zolgi Harrison's journal, like Darwin's journal on the Beagle. This is Zolgi Harrison's journal from his like you know decades long voyage in the sky, right? And um, and so what does that look like? And and there are little and what's nice about that is you can put in cool anecdotes, right? And he can talk about things. Um, this ties in with, in, in The Smoking Worm, I have a series of botanical articles that are all about different plants and their medicinal values and stuff. And they're written by another person. Her name is Wilhelmina Culpepper. Culpepper is a real guy from the 1600s. Uh, was one of them. is a very famous uh, British almost doctor who rebelled against the medical system and put out this treatise on herbology, one of the first herbal, herbal books. And heresy made it public knowledge, right? And so doctors were really upset because he basically took all these things that they knew, put it down in writing, and then handed it to people. Villages would pool their resources to buy an herbal so that they could then go down the street, pick up all the common weeds that they were, they were otherwise you know, getting rid of and use those to, to cure themselves. And so I took that concept and, I, and I, I've been doing it for DCC. Every issue of the smoking worm has two or three plants. And, uh, and so I created this character, Wilhelmina Culpepper, um, and, uh, and gave her a little bit of history and stuff. And she has little anecdotes in there. You know, she'll crawl across or come across a, a weird plant that maybe has some poisonous properties. And she'll be like, oh, and, you know, you have to be really careful when you carry this because as my retainer found out, yeah. <laughs> it can kill you. My former like, retainer. My former retainer. <laughs> or, 
poor John, he died. You know? <laughs> and so, so, you know, it gives, it gives, a, it gives, I think, I think at least, I don't know if anybody else cares, but I think it gives a cool kind of sense of immediacy. Yeah. And a, and a neat anecdote, you know, and it, and, it, and it drills home that this can kill you. If you don't do it right. I have a friend, her dad was experimental. He liked to go out in the woods and, you know, get things and then take them home and eat them. So he would even take <laughs> stuff that was toxic. Yeah. You could boil it like the milkweed pods. Apparently, if you boil them, if you eat them, they're toxic. But if you boil them and pour out the water, they're edible. Right. I guess. But the problem was he liked doing this with mushrooms, but he was colorblind. And apparently... He made oh, some man. mistakes, and she she has memories of him sticking his going outside, running outside, and making himself vomit because he 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 assumed he just poisoned himself. <laughs> it's like what a character. Yeah, <laughs> and and sometimes you have to wonder how is it that we ever thought that we should eat this, right? <laughs> Somebody had to be the first person that said, "You know what? Hold my beer." I'll yeah. Eat. Well, the, yeah, or like, well, this will be, I'm vomiting, but what if we boil it and yeah. pour it out? Okay. Pour it out. And so that's one of the cool things that I like to do is talk about the strange ways in which you turn this plant root into something usable. It's like, it's like, you know, you have to, if you read the original herbal, it has these insane suggestions, right? You need to hide it inside your shoe for a week under a bed, and then you need to, you know, yeah. You boil it in vinegar and then after you boil it in vinegar you pickle it with some horse dung and then you let that sit for a month and then you can uncork it and you can pull your root out grind it and then you know you can do this with (laughs) and so so one of the fun things that i do is is i i just make that stuff up right i'm like oh yeah i i have about 30 herbology books um all you know serious so that'd be funny for the characters you you know get rid of the potions of healing or whatever saying you've just been poisoned by a manicure sting yeah this is what you got to do <laughs> well and so so that's where it's really cool because there are occult or you know fantastic elements to real herb right so you get like wolfsbane well wolfsbane is traditionally uh in fantasy something you can use to uh to drive off werewolves so when i wrote the wolfsbane entry i was like Oh, well, in DCC, we have something called luck. And, um, and wolfsbane, if you happen to take the leaf of the wolfsbane, chew on it for a couple minutes, and then put it in your shoe, right, and walk around with it in your shoe, um, it creates a condition in which the wolf is repelled from you. And it will, it will basically, if it was going to attack you, it will attack the next nearest person. Right? right, but you need to know about it ahead of time. But you need to know about it ahead of time. You have to walk around with your wolfsbane. And if you don't, you're going to get, you're going to get it. Yeah. It's not as a matter of like, I have a ring I put on. It's like, no, you, you got to chew it and you got to stick it on your, your, uh, your shoe or in yep. your shoe. And so that the cool thing is, is, well, what if everybody knows about that? And the whole party has Wolfsbane. Like, well, then it doesn't know who to attack. And it like it in confusion, it flees. Right. And so there's, there's, if you think about it, it, it it's really like a twisted thing. I'm trying to get a party to all carry Wolfsbane, chew it. And then put it underneath their shoes and walk around as a party with Wolfsbane in their in their shoes to see if I, I want to see if a party ever does that. It would be so cool to find out that some adventuring group read that and was like, "We got to do this." Yeah, right. But, but it attracts vampires, them. unfortunately. But it attracts vampires, <laughs> and so they and love so the smell. You, you get, you get, you, so that's the cool thing you can do with these things. I love taking these real world things and then saying, "I'm in a fantasy atmosphere," and giving it a twist but still having most of it be true and factual and, and workable if, 
you know, so yeah. So that's, I've been applying what I've been doing with Culpepper's to this old Paris guy. That sounds like fun. Well, I yeah. think there's a gal who did a uh, herbology book, uh, fantasy herbology book. Yeah, Exalted Funeral. I uh, did not get it, but it looked beautiful. Three, three quarters of a million dollars in Kickstarter. <laughs> so. Your timing's off, Trevor. My timing was off. Well, you know, so hers is a hers has only got a hundred herbs in it. When I'm done with Culpepper's, it'll probably have four to five hundred herbs in it. And um, and so one of the things I've been thinking about is well, I can only get two or three of these per issue of smoking worm, and I only put smoking worm out four times a year at best. So I'm thinking about doing more of them. I'd like to kind of set my schedule up so I do kind of one a week, maybe two a week, and uh, and then put out a book, right? Yeah. And, and so so move around in the smoking worm so that I get a little bit of A and a little bit of B herb, C herb, everything. They get a dappling of, but you know, if you want fifty herbs in the A section, you're going to go buy the guy. Well, and I think even you know you don't you know that you're reprinting material kind of can seem kind of weird, but the other thing is like. There's going to be people that say, I just want a book of herbs, even if I've already got my DCC. I just want them all collected. So you're really not. Right. <clears throat> so I don't I don't generally like recollections, but I, I like them if they have added value. And if they have a lot of added value, that's a great idea. So what I'm planning on doing is I'm planning on taking the bestiary from during the Madlands and actually just redoing the whole thing with OSE and then utilizing those and plus some others. Uh, in just doing a bestiary for post-apocalyptic, because I guess OSC is going to be coming out, uh, Necrotic Gnomes and coming out with a post-apocalyptic version of their game. Of That's the, awesome. Of, but I was yeah. just like, well, at least it's all collected, and even if I do put it into Journey of the Madlands, you know, people may or may not want to do that, but at least it's all collected as a bestiary. Yeah. And I think there's going to be a lot of people who just want a bestiary. And, and, I, and the other thing is, is, you know, you've mentioned a couple of times you might want to Think about Dungeon Crawl Classics. They're coming out with Radiation Crawl Classics. Well, the is, thing is, the, the, that's the thing I'm going to talk to you about because I don't have, I don't have, I do know you mentioned that that they're good a lot of times if it's approved of, of, of buying X amount of copies. Yeah, so it's in the licensing agreement. So the, the thing is, is and that may be something I'd be willing to take some of my stuff to convert over, but I need somebody like yourself to actually do the document. I need to make it worthwhile. I don't need to necessarily make any money, but I don't want to lose money either. So uh, yeah. that's something I, when I, I look at, like like the spells for Fan of the Fly God, you know, all I did is just reskin D&D style spells and just right. made them weird and gross. But if you're going to do a spell in Dungeon Crawl Classics, it's got to be beyond that because you got to have that table to roll on. Yeah, and the other thing is, is it depends on if you're doing one super concentrated spell, or some of the spells take four or five adjacent concept and uh, you know spell concept and roll them in together. And so there's a couple different ways to build those spells, and they can be complicated. Um, but you know, it, it's uh, the payoff is really good usually. And so, yeah, and I just uh, I just know that it's it's not something like with OSE. Yeah, I can just go in and you know. Pull up an ogre, you know, and then make some adjustments to the ogre and say, "Okay, we're good here." And what really matters is the is the text, and the narration for 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 my best area. It's 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 not the mechanics. The mechanics are pretty easy to do. It's just the it's just the other stuff. So, but anyway, Dungeon yeah. Crawl Classics. I realize I don't have the chops, nor the desire, nor the time to be able to get into that particular space. Sure. 
Yeah, because it is, um, you know, it is a little more, a little more esoteric. You know, I mean, you know, oh, yeah. it, when you look at it, and I think it has, I think it has real world utilitarian payoff as a player. Oh no, it it does. I mean, the reason you you a person, you know, to cast a spell, there's a reason why they set up the way they do, and there's a reason why people love the spell casting either the mage will be doing it all the time or they just say no you don't do it until it's time yeah. <laughs> and then we all we all get we all get way back <laughs> yeah. so yeah. you know it is a completely so the idea is you know for those who don't know like with dungeon crawl classics you 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 know the spell you're casting but you're really rolling to seeing what happens and it may go in a way you don't really intend or want that fireball could be smaller or much bigger than you intend. <laughs> right. And I, I, so I've seen, um, uh, you know, I've seen like, think of magic missile, which is, you know, one little D4, yeah. one little D4, one little D4. And I've seen in DCC, you can have that one little D4 on a very minimal success, but I've seen people cast magic missile and get 12 missiles that all do D12 plus caster level each. Yeah. And that, that can get up to a hundred, 200 hit, you know, hit points of damage. Um, uh, we were playing uh, Steading of the Hill Giant, D1, and, um, and I had a party that had, we were playing DCC second, third level, um, and the party had crawled up into the Steading, and there's an airspace, I don't know if you, most people realize this, there's an airspace at the edge of the Steading from the wall to the ceiling, there's a space there, and it's giant-sized, it's small for giant, but it's man-sized. Yeah people you can crawl up there and then crawl up into the into the uh into the attic space essentially right up into the timbers and um and so i had a party that was up in the timbers in the roof watching the giant fall and all the giants are arrayed down there and someone's just like oh i'm gonna cast choking cloud like okay and they're like and i'm gonna burn you know 20 spell points spell points i'm gonna really burn down my physical stat you're sacrificing physical stats for a bonus and they killed 80% of the giants <laughs> in a single spell, right? He so looks like, at everybody else and like, what are you doing for this party? I'm, I'm but, doing all the work. Yeah, <laughs> I think I deserve 80% of the treasure here, right? I mean, but, but it, it, so it's amazing. You know, now that person has got weeks and weeks of physical recovery because burning ability, attributes right. is a simple thing. But, but, um, but, you know, the payoff is huge, right? So that's the cool thing about DCC is it's really swingy. Narratively, players can take it and really change it. yeah um and and different groups are have different levels of acceptance of some people are some groups are really cautious some groups are just balls to the walls let's do this and uh, and it's always cool to see the differences between so well i think we're hitting the time space continuum i think i got a dog that's uh she's ready to be released from our kennel <laughs> all right well, it's always good to talk to you, Joe. Okay. So thanks again, Trevor. I appreciate Not it. Not a problem. Have a great day.